Hello and welcome. My name is Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers who share love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. We also want to take a moment because we noticed on Twitter that we have a lot of French fans of the podcast, so we just want to say merci à tous nos auditeurs français. Nous sommes tellement touchés de voir des auteurs de l'Arthur Côte d'Etang. So I hope I didn't butcher your language, but merci beaucoup from the bottom of our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to To Die For, everyone. Jolene and I are so excited to, one, have an excuse to just be hanging out all the time again, <laughs> and two, to dive back into chatting about topics within the horror genre that we find really interesting spotlighting issues and people behind and in front of the scenes that we want to recognize. And of course, who would we be without some costume dissection? Today, we're warming the podcast back up with some noir classics, highlighting the work of the women and designers behind two fantastic Hitchcock films, first with The 39 Steps from 1935 and of course, 1940s Rebecca. I am so excited to get into it today. Jolene, welcome back. Thank Are you excited you. to nerd out again? I am so excited. I, <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, I was on two films in five weeks and it was quite a whirlwind. Um, I'm super excited for you guys to see these films when they're ready, but I was only slightly nerding out on set because these were more modern pieces. So people were asking me questions. I have new fans of the podcast from people on that I've met on set that are like, what else do you do? And I was of course, talking us up, Emma. So we have some new fans. <laughs> always networking for us. <laughs> always. Always, always name-dropping to die for. Um, yes, I'm, I'm very excited because I love Hitchcock. Well, we'll get into it, but I love hate Hitchcock. <laughs> right. But I, love yeah. his- I, I feel the same way. I think that, you know, there are a lot of empowered female characters in Hitchcock films that I feel really drawn to, especially in the noir landscape. Yeah. Um, but I do think that a lot of that has to do with the women working with and for Hitchcock that didn't always even get credited. Um, so then it's like, do I love Hitchcock? <laughs> like as a person, do I love this man or do I just love the work that he put out or do I just love the work that the people that worked for him put out? Yeah, it's a really hard. I mean, I were just talking about this. Like, how do we talk about Hitchcock? Because he has obviously changed the genre of filmmaking, horror filmmaking, suspense filmmaking, and parts of noir too. And, you know, he gave us Psycho, he gave us The Birds, he gave us Rebecca, Rear Window, all of these classics that are staples in this genre. He is the inspiration to so many directors, filmmakers, writers, all the above. But then, you know, he was quite problematic presence on set. You know, in doing my research for him, learning that he, well, first of all, he loved casting blondes because he said that women weren't naturally blonde. So he thought that blondness, I guess is what you would call it, mm-hmm. or to be blonde was a frivolous act. So only a woman who thought so vainly of herself and so frivolously of herself would actually dye her hair blonde. <laughs> And he loved incredible. See, right. He loved to see beautiful women in peril. Mm. Which I think is like the theme up until about the 1970s with filmmaking and in, in general and horror. Yeah. Because you look at those classic universal films too, and it's these beautiful women in peril 
And in situations where like they're being cowered over by these monsters, when in theory you could just slap them across the face, you don't have to be immobilized by fear. Yeah. Well, it's just so funny to like, you know, love the idea of, oh, that that woman must just be so frivolous and, you know, full of herself and would be perfect for, you know, to be the lead. That's so that's so nice of her to be. I don't know. I feel like does he think it's cute that women feel that they even <laughs> potentially need to dye their hair blonde to make it in Hollywood. Right. And to conform to beauty standards. Yeah. That- are very very damaging to so many women and he's like oh so frivolous i don't know i always no matter how vain anyone comes across especially women i'm like i don't think it's them i think it's the beauty standards and any given time period that make it difficult for us to move about and exist in this world comfortably and any sort of you know that's why i'm like how can you blame people for getting plastic surgery it sucks that that's a thing that people feel like they have to do but like i don't blame them for it you know oh yeah the same thing with like dyeing your hair blonde in the 30s and 40s it's like okay yeah that was a massive part of the you know beauty ideal which you know mostly was white of course and still is (laughs) um but yeah i don't blame them at all and i don't think that that makes them any more frivolous no, um, and let's not forget, most of the women that were cast in Hitchcock films were natural blondes. Tippi Hedren, Ingrid Bergman, like these women were naturally blonde. Yeah, also women can just be blonde. Right. <laughs> like, my, my best friend is blonde. It, they exist. <laughs> they exist in the wild. Yes. So Alfred Hitchcock, I think I don't think the conversation about him will ever stop. And especially now that we're in this era now of can we separate the art from the artist? Should we separate the yeah. art from the artist? And these are questions that we're posing to you guys. We're not saying that you should definitely or you shouldn't definitely, you know, we're, we're just, we're posing a question here because it is something to think about as artists. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think, you know, there is something to be said about the women that have worked with Hitchcock behind the scenes as well. And I'm sure they'll come up a little later as well. And yeah. we talk more about the films, his wife, Alma Reville, and his producer, Joan Harrison, who also is a screenwriter, multifaceted, Wearing multiple hats. She did everything. Yeah, she, I mean, she basically did everything. I mean, they (laughs) both had a major influence on his work, um, particularly when it comes to deepening the female roles in the films that they had influence on. I feel that they had a lot of creative autonomy. Like Hitchcock would give them a lot of creative autonomy behind the scenes to sort of run wild with the story when it came to screenwriting, except that he just wouldn't give them credit for the creative autonomy that he gave them. So you're just like, I don't know how to feel about that. Um, (laughs) I mean, uh, Joan Harrison specifically was kind of a cinematic utility player. You know, she was responsible for reworking scenes to accommodate the last minute casting of Madeline Carroll in the 39 steps. And in Rebecca, she also was like pressing David Oselznick, the producer to allow her to bring out, stronger less meat qualities in the heroine in rebecca she also i feel is responsible for a lot of the suspense that we associate hitchcock with because she wrote so many of his films and all of the ones that she had influence on are specifically noted historically as being you know prime hitchcock suspense you know her work is also seen in like the Lady Vanishes. She did Phantom Lady, which is like absolutely iconic. And she actually went on to become, uh, I think, the first woman to be hired at Universal as a producer. 
um, because of her work with Hitchcock. And also I feel like with Rebecca specifically, her work can really be seen in how the characters are presented because the story, like the novel that it was based on was a story written by a bisexual woman, upper upper class, however. So, you know, it is through an upper class lens. But Joan Harrison herself was queer. I feel like there were elements of that film that they were able to sort of get across despite Hayes Code um, because of Joan Harrison um, and her work that she put into that. And so, yeah, there there are women behind Hitchcock that affected a major thematic shift in noir, but they don't necessarily get the credit. You know, their scripts, both Alma Reville and Joan Harrison's work, replaced noir's submissive femme fatales with like adventure-seeking curious multi-dimensional women yeah and i think that they are a big part of the reason why we do associate hitchcock with stronger female characters than most noir films had especially at that time yeah and so you know we just wanted to take a moment to one recognize them for the work that they put in but also kind of continue that conversation of like who's who's really responsible for the work that we love yeah. And, you know, like Jolene says, does it matter? Like, can you just separate it? You know, will we ever know who really put in the most, right. you know, work in a given Hitchcock film? I don't know if we will. Um, <laughs> there is actually a great book, if anyone is interested. It's called Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, The Forgotten Woman Behind Hitchcock by Christina Lane. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about her work and sort of the general scape of women behind Hitchcock because they do talk about Alma Reville and that as well and uh, also the the actresses themselves in Hitchcock films generally had some say about the direction of their characters mm-hmm. I know that um, Madeline Carroll did she worked with the screenwriters on 39 Steps to create her character and so in that way they're also given some autonomy um, that I don't necessarily know if that was a common thing to just give actresses at that time to even ask them what they thought of their character. I don't think was a thing that happened a lot. I mean, it still doesn't really happen that much now. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, these women were great. I will also say too, that they were the only two women that could keep Hitchcock in line. Mm -hmm. Apparently when he got unruly on set, Alma and Joan were the only ones that were able to kind of, well, Alma very specifically was Mm -hmm. went toe to toe with Hitchcock quite often. And he was, she was the only woman that he was scared of. Good. <laughs> which is which is another mystery. I mean, we can get into more. And I've done a lecture on Hitchcock about this. So any of you are interested in seeing that, let me know. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Just about their marriage. And people didn't know if it was a marriage of professional convenience or if they were really in love because they weren't a very passionate couple. There was also speculation that Hitchcock might have been gay or bisexual. Mm. So was it just a marriage to to cover up the fact that he was gay? They don't really know. Um, they've never, nobody ever really saw them. They, they, they Obviously they saw them together professionally, but and they had a daughter. Past that, it was very brother and sister kind of relationship that they had with each other, which is interesting for a married couple to have. But mm-hmm. yeah. that is interesting. And, you know, something that is also kind of relevant to Rebecca when it comes to like queerness, like male homosexuality, I think was like illegal yes. at the time that these films were made. And so I don't think that it was I mean, even today, there are actors and um, you know directors and anyone cast and crew behind the scenes that are 
still in the closet because they feel like it'll hurt their career um, and their likelihood. And so at that time, it definitely was something that was extremely taboo. I mean, and for lesbians, female relationships weren't even talked about. And I think that like in like the 1920s at some point, the House of Lords discussed making female same-sex acts illegal, but decided against it because it would draw attention to it. So they thought it would do more damage. Oh my gosh. By just like creating legislation. So it was better to not say anything at all. So lesbianism wasn't talked about at all, but male homosexuality wasn't doing so hot either because it was literally illegal. So anyone queer in Hollywood was certainly most likely in the closet. And the only reason we know that Joan Harrison was queer is posthumous. Right. It was not something she was out about. And so I can only imagine that someone of his caliber, if he was queer in any way, would certainly not talk about it at all. Yeah. And these films are interesting because the 39 Steps came out in 1935. He still made this film. This is one of the last films he made in England before he moved to Hollywood. But 1935, by that time, grumblings of World War II in Europe had started. The occupations hadn't quite started yet. I think most of the the, the big grumblings in Europe started in 1934. So this is just a year later. So you have to think that they're shooting a year or two prior. Then Rebecca comes out in 1940. He's already here in the States. And World War II is already in the throes fully in Europe by that time. Uh, we haven't entered the war yet, but it is it is going on now in Europe. So, um, and he is, a, him and his core team, they're all, British. And so there's definitely, and there's probably political things that are um, undersetting a lot of these storylines that maybe Emma and I are not getting because we're not English and we're, we weren't alive at that time. So it's, in, I, w- I definitely want to do more, maybe we're here to talk about costumes, but I definitely want to do a more <laughs> look at like the political turmoil that kind of charged these films. Now, Rebecca wasn't done at Universal. So this, he, he hasn't quite hit Universal status yet, but he is now in Hollywood making movies. And that's what set him on the rest of his career trajectory. But these two films definitely catapulted him the most into what we know him as today, as the filmmaker we know him as. So mm-hmm. I'm glad we're doing these two as well, because I feel like The 39 Steps, like you said, was very much his catapult into Hollywood. And then yeah. Rebecca's his first film in Hollywood, um, very much with his still, you know, same British core team uh, that came with him. And I know that Hitchcock very much was interested in better, better equipment, better craftsmen of Hollywood. Like mm-hmm. it was, you know, definitely an aspiration. So I think Rebecca was obviously a very big deal for um, him and his team. But yeah, when it comes to the political landscape of this time period, I do think it's very important because it influences both the fashion of the time Mm -hmm. and also the films of the time. Everything's response. You know, fashion is a response, not an island. And the same thing with film. And you can kind of see that intersect in these films in a really interesting way. Yeah. I would love to talk more a little bit about how the political landscape did influence fashion. I think that the wartime was very influential for women's fashion, for sure. Oh, yeah. And you saw a lot of women leaning into menswear. Yeah. um, As far as silhouettes. 
that's sort of where when you think about like the 1930s 1940s you know women in pants sort of thing that's probably the most like notable silhouette difference uh in what we were seeing before then and after then too yeah in the 1930s especially in hollywood so in america we were going through the great depression obviously um if you remember from your history classes so what we were seeing in films at the time was pure escapism you had stories not about the poor you had stories about upper class society and the upper echelons of society and this is where you get some of these some of this women's wear, where all of the dresses were cut on a bias, which means that, so a little, little technical knowledge right now. So you have the grain of fabric, which is the way that the weave wefts. If you also know wig making too, that's <laughs> same thing. It's the, same the thing. Frayed. Or if you look at like, um, think of those like lawn chairs or a pie crust where it's going over and under, that's basically the grain just tighter in, in a piece of fabric. But when you take a pattern piece and you put it catty-cornered or diagonally on that grain, it hangs differently. So handkerchief dresses from the 1970s, think of Stevie Nicks, those are all cut on the bias. And these dresses were specifically designed because lingerie at the time became non-existent going into the 1920s. Women wanted freedom. They wanted the same rights as men, right? The right to vote was initiated. Women were getting their rights. Women started smoking, drinking out in public, going into jazz clubs of the 1920s. And so the thought was that, well, we don't need restrictive undergarments anymore. However, the beauty standards of the day said, pushed back and said, okay, fine. If you don't want these restrictive undergarments, you have to be literally a board. You have to be so thin that you were a board. So the clothing just mm -hmm. So all of these bias cut dresses were made for women of that figure, where it was a very, very small figure, barely any hips, but just enough hip that the diagonal cut of the bias gown could hang off of your body. But then five years later, in something you can even just track it in the in the skirt lengths between these two movies. Mm -hmm. Women were now going into the workforce. Their their clothing needed to be more practical. Um, so in order to be taken seriously in the workforce, the silhouette became more masculine. We have shoulder pads in garments now, in jackets, blazers, even shirts, blouses. Um, blouses became more practical where they were button downs down the front. They mirrored a lot of menswear of the time. So it was very um, stylish because st women still had to adhere to this standard, but it was also utilitarian as well. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting track, but it's one that is so very fascinating because of what's mm -hmm. happening politically at the time. Yeah. So the 1930s was very much escapism in films and you're seeing beautiful, fabulous gowns and, you know, we're not quite in the sequins yet. Sequins was a very 40s thing. And you see that in Rebecca in the older woman at the club in Monaco, where she's got this beautifully like laced beaded detailed gown. In the 39 steps, you're getting a lot of like bias cut ankle length, what we would call a midi skirt now where it comes to. Mm -hmm. the yeah. Yeah, exactly. I read something in some kind of book. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, I was like, I don't know if it was fashion history or just like an article on the independent or, <laughs> um, but something about how women in the 1930s and the 1940s were so resourceful with their fashion. I think people, when you think about America, we do associate this more with the 40s, which we'll get into as well, but that we were so resourceful with our fashion and we were in the workforce that like, really we could just be like a female utopia and be totally fine on our own <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much um 
but yeah, well, while we're on the 1930s, why don't we dive into the 39 yes. steps from 1935? Um, a brief little synopsis. Uh, this is a story about Richard Hannay, and he becomes embroiled in an international spy ring related to the mysterious 39 steps. He soon meets agent Annabella Smith, who soon is killed in his apartment. Uh-oh. And he must elude the police who are trying to hunt him for murder. In the meantime, he's also trying to stop Professor Jordan from sending secrets out of the country. He's also assisted by Pamela, played by Madeline Carroll. Oh, by the way, uh, Richard Hannay is played by Robert, is it Donat? Yeah, Robert Donat. That's what I thought. Robert Donat. Um, who she's an unwilling accomplice until she discovers the truth. Um, so Julian, what do you think about this film? I love this film. It's a lot of fun. Um, I love the fact that I love a little meat. I love a good little meat cute. I know that like mm-hmm. a lot of these rom coms, rom coms are like the way that you know loves progress in in these kinds of movies is quite quick and probably not healthy. But I am, <laughs> but like it's fun. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I love it. I love a good, I love spy and espionage films to begin with and little mysteries. Um, and Hitchcock is definitely famous for that. So yeah, this is, it's definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a really fun one. I also just recently learned that from Jolene, like 20 minutes ago, that, (laughs) um, (laughs) the 39 steps, while it's adapted to theater and it's been done like a million times in the theater world. Um, it's actually it's it's a comedy that's derived from the 39 steps but it's not yes. it doesn't i don't know if does it follow the same plot it sounds like it's like four different characters that play all the or four different actors yes that play all the characters i believe it is i haven't seen it on broadway but i believe it is the same plot um but yes it's four actors playing all the different characters so they're just making like accessory changes um oh. and it's it is more of a comedy than i mean this this that's film fun. is pretty light as far mm-hmm. as a Hitchcock goes, it's more of a mystery. It's not so much a uh, like a thriller. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's thrilling moments in it, but um, it is more lighthearted. So I think that's where they were able to to get that from the script. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, something I kind of associate with the Thirty Nine Steps is how the character of Pamela was kind of a radical departure for Madeline Carroll. Mm-hmm. Um, British audiences had really grown used to her playing like elegant but cold roles and like costume dramas and this was sort of her opportunity to play a character who was a little more real and raw and she had a lot of influence on how her character um kind of moved about the story um as well as of course uh alma Ravel and joan harrison yet again pushing for these her character specifically to have some dimension but i think her character is really fun we i mean that we also have a really fabulous female spy annabella smith who's played by um what's her name she's a jewish actress and her name is uh lucy Mannheim. she was born in berlin and acted a bit there and she actually was she had to stop acting in 1933 because she was a jew and her contract at the state theater was canceled and then she left germany uh and then fled to i think czechoslovakia and then to britain and then that's where she appeared in the 39 steps was after she had to leave germany yeah and so i think her role's really fun i like there's a lot of fun little tongue-in-cheek lines yeah, her about. Anyway, you know. and she certainly makes an entrance too. Like she comes oh. in with this faux fur, 
absolutely floor length gown and she's got this dark hair and she's hidden in the darkness and she's quite the opposite of Marilyn Madeline Carroll's character yeah yeah absolutely and she's mm-hmm. so sh- we meet her before we meet Pamela um and let's just talk about that fur for a moment because it's oh, so it's so dramatic and kind of structured in this sort of it's like kind of sits angular on her yeah it's very interesting I almost thought it was a hood for a moment but I mm-hmm. don't think it was no it was probably and now this is Thirty, so it's probably actual mink or fox. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a stole. I didn't see a face, but it was it was probably one of those. Yeah, it looks like there is a bit of um, kind of like a tail, the way it wraps around, creating yeah. this sort of um, it almost looks like a cowl neck. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's probably just unfortunately the tail of an animal. But yeah, she's wearing a glorious little um, kind of like a swing coat. Um, of course, looks like she's in a lot of black. Um, which of course was probably a lot easier for black and white than other colors, which is an interesting thing with black and white films that we can talk about is the color theory about how designers had to choose color for it Mm -hmm. to work properly on screen. But I feel like we can safely say she's probably in all black. It makes sense. She's a spy. Yeah. She has like a gorgeous little pillbox hat with sort of a sheer web in front of her face that kind of adds to the mystery of her character. Um, that we don't we don't get to see her a lot um, mm-hmm. but I do think that the costume itself is very much glam spy but also like there's people coming to kill me any minute now so I can't really be too flashy right her <laughs> outfit is one of my favorites because when I think of old films I want to see those big opulent pieces um, that we don't just don't have today so mm-hmm. yeah I love love seeing them on screen and they play really well and like to what emma was saying earlier is that you do have to know color theory because you have to tonally know what is going to work with black and white because your your his black and white film isn't actually just black and white it's shades of grays and blacks and whites and you have to sometimes make things like abysmally bright so that they show up nicely on screen i always think of like lily munster from the munsters which is obviously 1960s but still black and white her skin is like turquoise blue if you see production images of her but on film it just shows up like tinged (laughs) that's so crazy yeah well there's also like it's very it's very strategic yes and you have to i mean literally down to like using a different color than what you're what color you're trying to get across right and so you know and you also have to you know whether or not you want them to blend uh, or not blend, you know, right. if you're doing like a lot of if, you, if you're imagining the outfit in a lot of different tones, but like similar tones, like all purple tones, um, that might look kind of mushy and you might not be able to distinguish it if it's not a stark enough difference, you know, and then also with like prints and patterns, you know, it could potentially look too bold or too busy depending on, you know, how the scene is being set but also like if you're doing like a navy suit you couldn't really do that because it'll look black and so you have to do a different color or lighter color for that to work on screen and so you know and nowadays of course doing screen tests is very very important even just doing like you know these days we can do the monochromatic setting on like our phone (laughs) that alone will help you translate the proper color tones but you basically have to like look at a color wheel in black and white and work with those shades because 
it's an entirely you you can't utilize color theory in the way that you did before right you have to basically look at it from an entirely new lens of just shades right you know because depending on the tone of a color mid-tone green and a mid-tone blue per se might look the same on camera yeah and so you have to be really careful and there there is sort of an art to doing that and the designer of the 39 steps he looks like he's done a lot of uh, German films, actually. Yeah, so his name is Joe Strassen. He was the dress designer. And then a woman just named Marianne. That's it. Just Marianne. She did the wardrobe. <laughs> Very interesting. I noticed that as well when researching Rebecca was that the costume design was just by Irene. Just Irene. <laughs> Which is very cute. It's kind of iconic. Yeah. <laughs> so Joe Strassner was, he designed the dresses, but he was uncredited yes. in the 39 Steps. And then Mary Ann did, I presume, everything else? Yeah. So it just says wardrobe. So what I think what we can assume for that, what Emma and I have deduced from these other films is that they were doing like a hodgepodge of dressing on set. They were probably shopping. They were doing the work of, of what we have like five to six people teams. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say like very much in line with what we've learned in other episodes that yeah. frankly, before literally like 20 years ago, <laughs> yeah. costume designers were usually not credited as costume designers. They were credited as an array of different things. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it was just a dress, like dresser, a stylist, a supervisor that's a classic right. <laughs> just wardrobe person could be yeah. anything yeah um where we were and and usually that meant they were not getting paid um as high as they should because there was a reason they were given that title yeah um although i will say just saying wardrobe that's that's better than just assistant so right yeah it is it, it is, is something but man sucks for joe stressner that he had uncredited work there's that that happened a lot. I mean, it still happens, but I think in the 1930s and the 1940s specifically, that happened a lot. Like there was many, yeah. many uncredited people. Oh yeah, on all kinds of films. Um, but yeah, I definitely notice it with Hitchcock films. I'm like, hmm, yes. who are they uh, not crediting? I just want to know. Yeah, and I want to. I've noticed that I've started doing a lot of research into. I have made it my crusade and quest to find uncredited designers and give them credit where credit is due because there's a lot of women. Because now we're okay, sidebar, side note, we're in the throes of all of these talks of union negotiations and mm -hmm. better working conditions. And the Costume Designers Guild is also fighting, has been fighting that fight for a long time now because yeah. costuming, as we say a lot on here, and I'm sorry if we sound like broken records, but we just, <laughs> to keep saying it, we're passionate. We are. <laughs> it's, it gets tossed off as women's work because we are a primarily women's field. And a lot of women in genre filmmaking specifically do go uncredited because sci-fi, fantasy, horror has always been a quote-unquote men's game. But it's not. It really hasn't. These women have always been there. They just, I mean, that's why Mallory O'Mara wrote her book about Millicent Patrick, because she was written out of history by men making decisions that were threatened by her. So I don't know if it's the case of that these people were necessarily threatened by these all these people and they didn't give them credit. But nevertheless, they were just not given the credit that they deserved. So I, you know, we always, Emma and I will always find the person to credit, even if it is just their first name or just their title or something, because yeah. it was a film and they did a lot of work. And it's it these things, you know, people look to 
gowns, dresses on film, suits for style guides. We shape, we are the ones that are shaping the landscape of fashion. We are a direct line with those couturier runways or just the fashion runways, even of today, where we're playing this back and forth game of telephone and we're saying, I see you. I'm going to put this on screen. And then they're saying, cool, I see this that you're doing on screen and I'm going to take it. I'm going to make it further. And that's how fashion evolves. And that's that language of fashion that we have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with film, it's it's never like I I've worked in like a few different roles on like indie films and have assisted in different departments on like actual productions in the industry and all the one of the most important things to me on whatever project I'm on or if I'm just supporting someone else's project it is so important to me to spotlight the people that work in those different departments that usually don't get credit because I genuinely believe that a film is not a singular vision I mean it can be certainly but I do genuinely think that most films are sort of a hive mind mentality and uh, and creation because there's so many different people um, that are putting their influence into it. And, you know, directing is, of course, very hard work. And I love directors and I love directing, but I will always give credit where credit's due. You know, there are a lot of people in Hollywood and in the indie scene that don't necessarily find that to be a priority, you know? And, you know, whether I'm costume designing whether I'm producing or directing or you know or assisting it's so important to me to make sure everyone's voice is heard and recognized both behind the scenes and you know publicly when the film is released and so you know that is important to us um on this podcast because almost without even trying we will find that there is an uncredited wardrobe person (laughs) some way somehow in every film we cover um or if they are credited they're not credited for the work that they did, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, we got into it on, like, our Gruesome Foursome episode. Almost every single one of those films um, in the 80s had someone who was credited as, like, an assistant, but they was, like, the only person in the department. So you're like, <laughs> obviously, they did all the wardrobe. Right, because who were they assisting? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, so very interesting. Don't have a lot of information about these people who did costume design yeah. for the 39 Steps. Um, but it is fabulous. Yeah. So kudos to you, Marianne and Joe yes. and Irene. You. You're all goddesses. And you guys are great. You're doing We great. love you and we honor you here on today. <laughs> you are to die for. You are to die for. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so a lot of the men in Hitchcock films in general, especially at this time and also in The 39 Steps and in Rebecca, frankly, were just very well dressed. I wouldn't say that they were wearing anything super, super crazy. I mean, fashion at that time did not have men experimenting with clothes. And I don't think that fashion very frequently lets men experiment with clothing. Yeah. Um, Or at least that's not the norm. Uh, There was a little bit of experimentation with color. I will say from the 20s into mm -hmm. the 30s. More women, I'm sorry, more men were starting to wear like pastels because you did get a whole movement of sportswear. Right. Men were golfing, leisure wear became a thing, resort wear became a thing. So there was like a little bit, but still not a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That kind of reminds me in the 39 Steps when Richard is escaping that little house, (laughs) that little countryside house. And he originally is in this kind of like what I presume to be like a brown tweed is sort of what it looked like to me. Yeah. It could be gray technically. 
Um, <laughs> we don't know because it was in black and white. Yeah. Um, he's wearing this really fantastic structured tweed jacket, and then he's escaping, and the um, the woman that he was he was with was like, "Quick, take this jacket," which was like her husband's jacket. <laughs> like this one's darker because you know then he, then they won't catch you. You won't be seen as much because this one's darker. And I was like, oh, I love a bit of costume in the dialogue. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Costume as a plot device. Um, so then he, he eventually switches to like a long black jacket mm-hmm. or what we presume to be black. Frankly, it could have been navy <laughs> yeah. for all we know. Uh, it was probably most likely black, though, when I think about the time period. Yeah. But yeah, I do feel like his costumes are pretty. Um, there's not necessarily much like story analysis I can see in it um, other than sort of very classic very um early bond energy is sort of the energy yeah. i got from it <laughs> yeah i mean we can even talk about the the contrasting texture of the film yeah. because the 39 steps takes place in cold rainy scotland and london and so you're seeing like emma was saying tweeds you're seeing um boulder not prints per se there weren't a lot of prints in this time period either there was some florals and some polka dots, but nothing mm-hmm. too bold. But you're getting warmer, more layered fabrics and um, mm-hmm. textures. And then in Rebecca, we start the movie in Monaco, which is the south of France. And then we move to the shores of England. So there's still these two beach, you know, even though England is not, it isn't warmer than the south of France, there's still two beachfront properties. So right. you're seeing, you know, more athleisure resort wear. Lighter fabrics, very mm-hmm. thin fabrics in Rebecca, everything that kind of, because it's very billowy. It's a ghost story. It's about, you know, so you're seeing a lot of chiffons and things that are going to blow in the wind. And then 39 Steps is, is a man on the run who needs to be practical, but needs to hide. So you've got chunky pieces that match the Scottish countryside, which I think is really beautiful. Yeah. And yeah, this, the seasonal difference is very, very stark. Even I would say Rebecca just feels a lot lighter in the costuming. Like yes. it feels very almost spring fevery. There's a mm-hmm. lot of um, floral detailing, flowers, you know, lace, frilly stuff, kind of dainty stuff. And I would say in the 39 Steps, it's definitely a little more heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, all the women are in kind of um they're certainly they're in more like pencil skirt sort of mm-hmm. dresses longer darker looks like a lot of knit yes um or different knit types of um materials kind of cozier it definitely feels a little cozier yes um but also a little bit you know uh, what's the right word i want to say like stark like it's yes. very um or maybe stiff the costume in the 39 steps is a little more stiff but i feel like that whether it was an intentional choice or not makes a lot of sense with the tone of the film because it is like a mystery and they're on the run and it is very tense and i feel like the costuming with the structure that it has and the textures that it has and kind of the no frills about it it does feel very stiff um however i will say that pamela wears a fantastic dress that has sort of a i want to say it's like a bib collar but it's like a kind of detached almost because it sort of flips out at the end it's very interesting it has a little a little bit of a bow tie and it almost looks like what you would see in like a men's tux like a dicky um, yeah yeah it's like a dicky and it's on this uh sort of long black number or i guess it's kind of a just past the knee length black number and i believe she had long black sleeves as well um, but it was kind of fun because while the dress itself was extremely simple, that sort of dicky element mm-hmm. was really kind of 
playful or whimsical and I felt that it spoke to her character a little bit um, because her character, while she's in a very serious situation, she is a little bit of the comic relief. You know, it's this kind of meet cute buddy cop situation between her and um, Hannah. And she's very much, you know, demure. But I don't know. I thought it was kind of a fun yeah. decision. Well, I love when you when you look at patterns of clothing from the 1930s, because we were in a time of economic recession. Well, we were in a time of economic like depletion and turmoil. Yeah. Women had to get very practical with their garments. So you will actually find cuff and um, front piece pattern pieces that you can add to dresses. So you could keep the same dress and, and reuse the dress, but like upcycle the cuffs and the collars on the dresses and like the bib dicky pieces. So they'll have you or sleeves too, whole sleeves. You could just, and so a lot of would, you know, sewed their own garments. I mean, there's the story of the flower workers for not floral workers, men that worked in the flour mills who, when they realized that the women in the thirties and the forties started, um, using the sacks of flour to make their children's garments, they actually started putting floral prints on the flower bags so that That's women- so sweet. Yeah, so women could make these nice dresses for their children, which was really amazing. So a yeah. lot of women of that time did sew. So you could get like for a, 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 you know, a pattern that did a sleeve in like six different ways. And Simplicity actually still sells them where you can get those six-way oh, sleeve cool. patterns. Yeah. Yeah, it's when I think about the 1930s and the 1940s, especially when it comes to women's fashion, I think of resourceful. Yes. It was extremely resourceful. Um, you know, down we hear the stories about, you know, wartime women drawing lines up the backs of their legs <laughs> I love because that. they didn't have tights to have the illusion of tights, which is so funny to me. And I love that somebody invented an apparatus to keep the line straight. I know. It was like a whole <laughs> thing. I mean, it was a thing that literally everyone did and yeah. they had tools to do it even better. Yeah. Um, which is, it's genius, but also like, would it look like tights? I don't know. I think if your legs were, you know, shaved down, because that's when women start shaving their legs. So I think mm -hmm. if your legs are shaved enough and you kind of grease them up a bit with Vaseline. It could, yeah, it could um, look like tights. Yeah, it could look like tights. Like a it's silk so stock. funny. Well, and I feel like at a point, because everyone knew everyone was doing that, yeah, that in itself became the trend. So it didn't really matter if it looked like right. you were wearing tights or not, because everyone knew you were doing the line trick. Um, and it just yeah. mattered if you had a straight line. Right, exactly. <laughs> what I also love about these films is because they are noirs and thrillers. One of my favorite looks on guys is the trench coat with the with the collar up and the Hamburg hat, and we get them in both of these films. Yes. Which is amazing. And I love that, like, so I haven't, I don't actually know when the hood, be, like, actually came onto jacketed garments. I think it was only on. Because it wasn't even on rain clothing at the time. You were wearing what is called a Sioux Western, think of uh, Gordon Fisherman hat. So I don't, I don't know, I need to look that up when specifically hoods were added to coats. There were no hoods on coats at the time. So we, we, get, we get the men think Casablanca. These, both of these films where you're in a trench coat with the collar up and a Hamburg, a nice Hamburg hat. Yeah, absolutely. I think that these films showcase what I feel like is some of the best of fashion of the time. Yeah. Um, you know, it was particularly nice to see some sort of fun elements and kind of callbacks to fashion that of the time. 
in the 1930s with like that dress that Madeline Carroll's wearing with the fantastic jackets that Hannay wears throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt very much like a master class and like upper class fashion of 1935. And it was also like a classic Hitchcock blonde, but much more feisty, memorable, sort of borrowing from the emerging like screwball comedy genre. And it was sort of a new rendition of the way that Hitchcock had portrayed women previously. (laughs) Right. And so that was kind of cool to see. And I liked that she had such a fun costume as well. Um, I felt like they sort of added those whimsical elements almost on purpose, which, you know, aside from the terrifying tone of running around town and running, you know, away from the cops. (laughs) Handcuffed. Um, You don't know. Yeah. And handcuffed together. (laughs) Um, There was sort of a whimsical element as well particularly to her character yeah um that i thought portrayed both sides of her character really well but yeah i don't know it was it's an interesting film i feel like it um if i remember correctly it they were worried with about publicity with the film and they were worried that the film might be perceived as like an adventure for boys (laughs) with like little appeal to a female audience right which i think is mostly based on the assumption that women didn't like action films and not based on the assu- they're like women like dainty nice stuff right um, they like to watch women sew for two yeah. hours on screen yeah exactly <laughs> so like they focus so much of the publicity around this sort of like romance um that i feel was <laughs> i don't know it's yes there's a romance element to it, super cute ending, um, or maybe not cute, but like charming. <laughs> it's yeah. a charming ending. Charming ending. Um, but they focused on that, so there would be appeal to women because they thought that romance was the only thing women cared about, and they played down the other elements in the publicity, which I thought was a little bit silly. Um, yeah. But they also did that with Rebecca, where they very much marketed it as this like nice budding romance, where I'm like have you watched the film? Right. I'm starting to think that people in marketing, and this is not a knock at marketing people, um, but people who market films specifically, I don't think they know what they're doing (laughs) because we've seen this time and time again, specifically in horror. Let's forget the plight of Jennifer's body, Mm -hmm. but I digress. Um, just they're not they they don't know how to market these films correctly. And they try to market it towards one audience instead of seeing the films for what they are at their core and just being truthful about, Hey, yeah, this film is about, I think that's why, I mean, in modern times, so many people get so angry on Twitter. I think it's a lot of that where like these marketing people will put out certain campaigns and I, and marketing has never really changed throughout history because people are people. And yeah. uh, yeah. I feel like the problem, you know, especially like Jennifer's body is the example that sticks out to me the most as well. Yeah. (laughs) Um, where like the people doing marketing, maybe because they're not the target audience, literally don't know what to do. And I feel like so often historically, you know, not all the time, but, um, (laughs) so often people who are doing publicity for these films aren't trying to step into the shoes of who the audience might be. Right. They're They're just just, like trying to market it. I don't know. It's like, they're trying to do their job, but they're like not doing it well. (laughs) Right. Um, and yeah, that was 
a massive problem for Hitchcock films, but I mean, it, I mean, they were all successful, so it was like fine. But yeah, well, I think that's why he took over marketing when he got to Universal because that makes sense entirely. I, I think that something like Psycho, where he was like very specific with how he wanted to market that film, and it was like you can't enter the theater after the movie has begun, and like he sent out all of this like, and that was in the era of flash marketing where it was like oh my goodness, you're going to be so sick from all of this blood yeah. and this movie's in 3D and all of these like gross. Mm. It reminds me of The Tingler, how The Tingler yes. was marketed. Yeah. Like you're going to literally die if you watch this film. Right, exactly. So I think he definitely got agency with how he was marketing these films in his later part of his career. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, when he was starting out, you know, he didn't have that right. same agency. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would love as we like move into Rebecca to just chat a little bit about how the fashion landscape shifted in the 1940s Um, because I feel like the 1940s not only is Rebecca Hitchcock's first Hollywood production when you think about the 1940s we think about how um, the war affected um, American people and American fashion and that's sort of when you start to associate the lineup the leg thing (laughs) yeah yeah. So in the 1940s, so this movie came out right in 1940. And we are seeing the for, the 1940s is broken up into two very distinct moments in fashion, which is war and post-war fashion. And post-war fashion is what a lot of people think of when they think of the 1950s, which it mm-hmm. is, but it was started in 47 with Dior's new look, which was the, you didn't have to ration, so let's layer up the tool, let's layer up the petticoats, and let's just go balls to the wall or uteruses to whatever rhyme we <laughs> Let's be extravagant um, and exactly you know, elegant and glamorous and excessive. Yes, yes, because now because the war was not fought on our home front in the in the States, people were looking towards American designers. American designers were being taken seriously in the world of fashion. So it had a lot of influence into how films were costumed. And this was also a time where you had heads of department at Universal at Paramount and stuff, but they were Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what costume design was. It wasn't what we think of it as now, as a, as the career that it is. But um, a lot of these films, too, were marketed out to couture designers like Chanel who weren't getting a lot of work in Europe because the war was going on. So they were come, you know, they said, well, why don't you come over and design a film and designing a film is totally different than designing a collection. So I think a lot of them struggled. I know reading that Chanel did struggle with that and stuff and she didn't like it, but yeah, it's really, it's very, so from 1940 to 1947, it's very utilitarian. Like we talked about, it's very um, feminine figures with masculine shapes. It's mm-hmm. a That's lot of seen the pants, right? Like the shoulders, a lot of trousers, a lot of shoulder pads, but still darts on bust lines and still nipped in areas. I mean, and, and the undergarments have also changed too. You have you have the introduction of the girdle, which is um, almost like a spank, but with it's they're not shorts; it's just a skirt spank. Mm-hmm. Holds everything. Yeah, in. <laughs> the, the the beauty standard is also no longer a boyish frame, right? Um, yes, we've now right. moved into the sort of curvaceous, yeah. um, right. like Marilyn Monroe sort of thing is starting to happen. I'm not a, in Rebecca. Mm-hmm. In Rebecca, I would say it's still very much the boyish frame. Yes. Um. Yeah. But you know, later in like as we move in out of the 40s into you know when you think of Dior's new look, 
that's right. when we start to see the sort of um, the Marilyn body becoming more of the beauty standard. Yeah. But that's not relevant to Rebecca. So. No, but you are starting to see that transition because the older woman that is sitting at the um, the resort with Joan Fontaine's character, she is in this like sweetheart neckline with the lace that goes up to the mm-hmm. neck. So the, the dress that she has has a sheer top to it. It's happening. And sleeves, right. And it's beaded and it's it, the opulence is starting in this party wear. Um, and even in um, – oh, no, wait. I'm thinking of The Invisible Woman. <laughs> I've watched so many black and white films this week that they're all merging in my brain. Oh, my goodness. I'm but my, my brain just shot. character you're thinking of then. But, well, the my brain just shot to all of the evening wear in The Invisible Woman because she's a model. But well, it what, is. What year did that come out? That was like 42, 43. So it's still that like – Still relevant though. Yeah, yeah that, that was – happening you know earlier in the 40s too i mean just kind of like how you think about early 70s trends that really started like in the mid 60s right right it's always earlier than you think it is it is it is um but yeah so the costume design was done by the aforementioned irene irene Um, who is just credited as costumes yeah so that was a bit of an uncredited situation probably not getting enough credit where credit's due but Irene's actually relatively successful and semi semi well known in the in the costume world um I personally have never heard of her but when I read about her um I was like wow this is really fascinating and so her full name is Irene Maud Lentz um professionally I I guess I assume professionally she goes by Irene or if that was just maybe someone just thrown on oh yeah Irene did costume design I will Um, I will say a lot of people forget names. I, yeah. I professionally go by my middle name and I cannot tell you that the amount of times I get credited as just my first and last name. <laughs> I, you know, I, part of the reason I was starting to think about, I used to go by Emma Nicole Kogan and then I thought it was too much of a mouthful. And now I'm kind of like considering it again because I feel like, I don't know. I'm like, I wonder if that would help people remember my name more. But then yeah. again, like you just said, it doesn't necessarily help. Let's bring back the middle name. I mean, Sarah Michelle Geller and Jennifer Love Hewitt, it works wonderful for them. So it does work well for them. I'll think of, <laughs> I'll consider. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so Irene actually was originally wanted to be an actress. So that's why she moved to Hollywood. And she did like throughout the 20s she worked in you know like comedies she did picking peaches in 1924 and a tailor-made man in uh, 1922 before that and she married um director f richard jones in 1929 he unfortunately died a year later from tuberculosis which is super sad um but to make extra money she decided to open a dress shop and she i think must have been through that dress shop she was asked to design clothes for um goldie gets along which was i you know i don't think i've seen it now that i think about it i don't have, I wait what did you say i definitely have not i've not seen oh, it okay yeah all of this well, sounds super cute <laughs> i'm like it sounds really cute and i bet the costumes were cute um <laughs> but so that was like her first job was goldie gets along in 1933 um as far as costume design and she super quickly became one of hollywood's like top costume designers apparently she had a very passionate affair with actor gary cooper um and doris day who was kind of her like confidant said that that said that she said that he was the only man she ever really loved even despite you know other marriages and that kind of thing so that was kind of a hollywood fun fact about her um but yeah she continued to be like the head costume designer at mgm and she created iconic costumes for Lana Turner, 
Lana Turner, <laughs> Lana Turner and Judy Garland. Um, and she was actually nominated for an Academy Award in 1948 for her work on BF's daughter uh, in 19, uh, also shot in 1948. Yeah. And she left MGM, I believe, to open her own fashion house and her second marriage was troubled and at the same time they began to live apart and then doris day who's again one of her close friends asked her to design the clothes for midnight lace this is and that was in 1960 as well this kind of makes me think about how actresses had a lot of influence on the crew yes many times especially for costume because costume designers were a lot of times more personal to the specific actor so we would see specific actors having specific costume designers for just them whether it was like their stylist or you know and that that still happens oh yeah yeah I mean as you can see like a lot of Irene's work was because an actress or someone asked her to do it yeah I'm curious if she worked on the man the the remake of the man who knew too much because Doris Day was in that Mm. fun fact natural blonde Hitchcock cast her um Mm. he did a remake of his film that he did it from the 20s or 30s so and if she was close with irene i wonder if irene did those costumes as well i wonder although there's it's i'm looking it up it looks like it was actually edith head oh okay that makes sense because that was at universal mm-hmm. well and, and edith head can do whatever she wants right <laughs> she's very yeah. obviously very powerful costume designer but um yeah she for went. midnight lace irene received another academy award nomination which is very cool mm-hmm. um but she actually really tragically died Oh my God. In um, 1962, she apparently also had a serious drinking problem at this point, suffering from depression, and she committed suicide by jumping out of a bathroom window um, at a hotel in Hollywood. And it's very, very tragic. She oh was God. buried next to her first husband. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so kind of a really sad story, but she did live a really successful life despite- yeah. Um, her turbulent personal life and even like I believe in her suicide note she wrote about it was super short but one of the things she said was um, find someone good to design and so it was obviously very near and dear to her heart and I think she was I mean she'd lived a relatively long life she was 61 years old when she committed suicide which is really sad Wow. Um, but yeah, she's a fabulous designer. And this was probably one of her earlier works. I mean, in the 1930s was sort of when she was peaking. And so 1940, at that point, that was when she was yeah, just really the like becoming, coming into the role of head costume designer at MGM. Yeah. Um, Good for her. Yeah, yeah. Super, super cool. When I think about Rebecca and the costume design, I very much think about the incredible dresses there's so many incredible dresses. There is the one that Joan Fontaine wears that looks black, and it probably is. Again, it's black and white, so we're just assuming. But um, it has these gorgeous, like rose appliques on yes. the um, on the the bodice and on the um, the neckline, and it's so gorgeous. And there's this dress by I don't remember the name. There's a there's a designer now that has I don't know. Have you seen the the dress that has kind of um it's longer dress it has shoulder pads and it has like rose appliques all over it it's kind of popular i don't think so it's very cute and i will i do not remember the name of it but anyways i've seen a few dresses these days yeah. that remind me a lot of that dress with the rose appliques um, yeah. that are just like the most whimsical you know floral spring fever situation that i've ever seen that dress particularly 
um, and the more like lacy big dresses that we see as well in the film are yeah. sort of what ignited my love for 1930s and 40s dresses because um, they're just gorgeous. That one was one of my favorite dresses and it made me mad though when she walked into the room it's because their relationship is so toxic. So I did enjoy this film. It was my first time watching it because it was one of your favorites. So I was really excited mm-hmm. to do this one. And when I watched it, I enjoyed it, but I hated how toxic their relationship was and how mm-hmm. he spoke to her because it made me cringe because I've been in relationships like that, but just, yeah, just all of that. But she walks in and she feels so confident and so beautiful in this dress. And then he just go, turns to her and goes, well, why are you wearing that? And she just immediately recoils into herself. And I'm like, no. Because it's gorgeous. It is so gorgeous. <laughs> love, I mean, we love a good floral symbolism on this podcast. Yeah. We love we like do. the feminine <laughs> floral symbolism that, that flowers – symbolize let me get let me get there (laughs) um but just you know and and it really does speak to her her character where she is coming into this mansion in the shadow of the ghost almost literally of mr de winter's dead husband Mm -hmm. and i don't even think she has a first name in this movie because in the credits it just says mrs de winter yeah i i think that is she's just credited as there's Mrs. DeWinter and the Rebecca. second Mrs. DeWinter. Yeah. Right. And so, well, Rebecca's not really technically in the film, but yeah. So, and so she's coming into this home. She isn't from an upper crust lifestyle. She doesn't know how to talk to the help, have help, have maids and butlers and stuff and run a household, um, you know, run opulent parties and host opulent parties. But then, she, you know, through this mystery of, of figuring out, because all of this gets resolved as soon as they start communicating to each other. As soon as he tells her, like, what is actually going on and why he's upset and all of this stuff. That's when, like, the air, like, the exhale kind of lifts off the both of them. And they're able to work together mm-hmm. as a married couple. I'm like, just, just, just talk. Just be straightforward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it kind of makes me think about how, you know. Build as, it was billed as a romance, which is just yeah. really funny because Daphne de Maurier, which I believe is how I pronounce her last name. So sorry if I did that completely wrong. So she wrote the novel, Rebecca, mm-hmm. and she said that it was supposed to be like a study in jealousy. Oh, and it was okay. like a, kind of a gothic noir inspired by her husband's first fiance, who I, I read that her husband's first fiance used to sign her letters with an R. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of spiraled into Rebecca the story um but yeah the like the hell that is all of the marriage that we see right in um in Rebecca it was basically made two years after um the UK's uh 1937 matrimonial causes act which finally made divorce possible for women and like before that adultery could only be used as grounds for divorce by men and women had to prove adultery alongside incest, sodomy, like, or cruelty to even win their freedom, which is more or less just, like, entirely impossible. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, and so, like, the first time, for the first time in British society, um, marriage didn't necessarily mean until death do us apart. And so this opened up a lot of possibility for possibilities for women and also may have caused um Dumarie to become introspective on her own marriage when she wrote the novel and then when it was uh you know 
transcribed into um, a screenplay, which Joan Harrison, of course, had a big part yeah. in transcribing this story. And yeah, I don't know. Max is extremely manipulating. Oh my god, condescending. So yeah, um, just brooding you know, and, and he's like immature. He, he doesn't address his own feelings. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, says a lot about, you know, men should go to therapy. Like, I, everyone should be in therapy, especially in this movie. Right. Um, and yeah, like he replaces his first wife, who's an independent, capable, sexual woman with a girl that he praises for her innocence, which right. is a theme that we see replicated throughout film history um, and especially in horror where um, it's usually the sexual woman who is being right. uh, demonized and it's innocence that is praised or romanticized, objectified, all of those fun things. Um, but yeah, it's also worth uh, worth noting that this film very much is coming from an upper class lens. Yeah. Um, you know, it was this like social and economic freedom that allowed the novelist to even pursue physical and emotional affairs with both women and men in her real life and even to use them even if it was uh not direct in her writing and so the fact that there's even any queer coding in this film was an upper class experience in itself right which is really interesting she was afforded the secrecy because you know, she right. had money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think I read somewhere that she, Demarie hated the term lesbian and instead referred to her, to herself as, or not maybe not to herself, but to, um, to lesbianism as Venetian tendencies. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm like weird or iconic. I don't know. <laughs> I feel that, I mean, it's, it's quite the, it, like, it's a term that makes you think. And I think maybe you should bring it back, Emma. Maybe it's time to talk about Venetian tendencies. Venetian tendencies. It's a, it's a little iconic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you? What would you make of um, Max's costuming um, as a little little baby boy? <laughs> um, so Max is played by Laurence Olivier, who is a prominent actor on the stage and the screen. Most notably and controversially, he played Othello in the movie version of Othello um, in the '30s. Uh, or the four, or I think it was the 40s, but anyway, yeah. Um, sure. He, I, I really enjoyed his his costuming. I mean, he's got a lot of layers on, and that right there is a telltale sign that there are secrets afoot. Um, because he's got his shirt, his sweater vests, his jackets. He does the trench, you know, with the Hamburg when it rains, with the um, with the collar always up. His, I mean, it's hard to to note about the color palette, and it's also. Um, fair to say too that when when we do our research with these a lot of the behind the scenes footage at the time as well was also taken in black and white so mm. most people have these garments on archive it's really hard to find colorized not like true color photographs of yeah. these garments and and you know if this was day wear they were probably keeping it in a warehouse until it like got a little weird you know got a little jank and then probably tossing it <laughs> yeah exactly um, yeah, but he, he did have a very um, a mysterious persona to him. He was in a lot of grays. He was very steamy, like the fog by the beach. When But but in Monaco, he was a little bit brighter. He was more tailored. So it was interesting to watch that shift as they get married and he moves back to Mandalay. And mm. I love the name of that estate. And he gets onto the beach and it's like this foggy British 
beach that he's his his life is shrouded in this mystery because of this this beach cottage happening and also um I feel like Joan Fontaine has a bit of an interesting arc, like costume arc. Yes. She very much starts out as, you know, like we said, very timid. Um, She's timid. She's young. She's wearing, well, almost, yeah. Yeah. She's a little dowdy, you know, she's like long cardigans, you know, certainly not showing a lot of skin, um, which of course, you know, I don't think that women showing skin in general was looked upon that greatly at the time anyways yeah um but yeah so she's kind of just in like soft little cardigans nothing too heavy very like light but um like light fabrics like very like light knits Mm -hmm. but not a lot of movement to them but then as the film unfolds she does start wearing more and more dramatic clothing you know like the aforementioned uh, gorgeous uh, rose dress and then down to these massive dresses that, um, you know, off the shoulder, you know, decollete showing, which she wasn't before. And so she sort of opens up throughout, through the costume throughout the film as well, which I feel like is probably the strongest costume story per se in this film and probably out of the two films as well. Um, It's the only time I feel like for me, I really see like a shift that you could identify as like a character shift in line with their costume shifting. Yeah, and I think that's because what you were saying before, where the book was based on this idea of jealousy, and you mm-hmm. can very much see that through the new Mrs. De Winter, where she's, you know, Rebecca's room is untouched and her study is untouched, and she doesn't know really anything about this woman and really her death or anything. Her husband has, her new husband has told her nothing. And she's coming in and she's almost competing with this idea of, because even the head, Maid doesn't like the new Mrs. De Winter because she loved the old Mrs. De Winter. And they just keep reminding her that, oh, everybody loved Mrs. De Winter and everybody loved Rebecca. And, you know, Mm. people flocked to Rebecca and all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I think Rebecca in general picks at the edges of what behavior is acceptable in female sexuality. Yeah. But when I think about the queer coding, it's like everyone loves Rebecca, but then some people like love Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> like right. Mrs. Danvers particularly is kind of celebrated as an example of Hollywood's queer subculture. You know, she's like carefully preserving Rebecca's possessions right down to her underwear. Right. Um, you know, and of course, you know, spoiler burns the house down to avenge, you know, the woman. Right. And she like burns herself with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very much a literally undying devotion to Rebecca. But yeah, you know, the the possibility for a very, uh, for an open, you know, lesbian relationship or dynamic between Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened because of the the fact that female relationships were not discussed, like at all. Right. But you can still see that it very much is that sort of, of course, study in jealousy, but also study in female sexuality. And I think that does still come through. Yeah. And I don't know, it's also a study of this guy being a little baby. <laughs> it is. No, it is. And then you notice that, like, like I was saying, as soon as he tells her exactly what happened, she's like, oh, I get it now. Let's be a team and let's work together. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. That's like the last 30 minutes of the film where I'm like, wow, you could have done this the the entire hour and a half before this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, something else I was thinking about too, just kind of going back to that dynamic between Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca, the sort of lacy um, negligee yes. um, that she picks up and she's kind of 
talking about how like thin and like transparent it is is another way that costume is used as a plot device um because that is literally all we were we are seeing to i mean not all we are seeing but it's a marker of who rebecca yes was as a person yeah the way that she is starkly different to the new mrs de winter right and so we're seeing that through costume through this like um dainty fancy sexy little negligee yeah <laughs> where how, she was sleeping in the nude and yeah, yeah yeah exactly and also when i think about it being sort of you know thin and transparent like what does that say maybe to her her character as a person mm. um you know I, I i don't really know if that was intentional but if you were to kind of think about like compare um rebecca to this lacy negligee you know what would you make of it i would say right you know sensual but also maybe you know very very much like in her power but also maybe she was shallow yeah i mean and then i always think about too the um the moment where she takes um the new mrs de winter to the closet and opens up and you see all those fur coats but it's discussed that max purchased these coats for rebecca so it's almost like he wanted to and they're so much heavier and chunkier and they're they're real fur mm-hmm. than that negligee so does he, was he, I mean, we do find out that he didn't love her. So spoilers. Um, <laughs> was, he, was he ashamed of her? Did he want to cover her up in swaths of fabric to hide her from the world? Because he knew that she was unfaithful and he knew that she was this type of person. And we see that mm. through her coats. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is really interesting. And, you know, yeah. the, the design of this film, I think, as far as the costume goes, it does tell a little bit more of a story than the costumes in 39 Steps. Yes. Um, even Mrs. Danvers, I feel like when you look at her costume, you can tell exactly like who she is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if it's just a uniform, the way that she's wearing her uniform, the way that her hair is pulled back. Mm-hmm. I mean, very she's stiff very stiff and clean. Exactly. Yep. And it looks yeah. great. I mean, it's very cool. It's very, you know, well oh, I love it. put together and structured. Um, but just those clean lines, there's not a lot of movement to it. It is right. very rigid. And it is very, like, the um, the neckline is very, you know, it's very crisp. Mm-hmm. There is no real uh, uh, flaw, necessarily, to that costume. Right. Um, right. And the only skin that's showing is her face and her hands. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's just kind of this um, omnipotent figure. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that aside from... The dresses that are absolutely fabulous. <laughs> My favorite part about this film is that fact that yeah. um, you can sort of identify the characters a little bit through their costumes. And at this point in 1940, I feel like that's when you started to really start to see a shift of costume design telling a more story in mainstream films. Yes. Um, because yeah. at this point, you know, 1940s and prior, you know, with a few exceptions, of course, because I think that they're depending on the film, lots of stylistic liberties. Um, But generally when it came to films, especially popular films, most of it was just, you know, normal day-to-day wear that people would wear in real life. Generally it would be like upper class wear. Right. Um, You know, again, which is what we will generally see in a Hitchcock film. You don't see a lot of everyday folk, but to be fair, even everyday folk were generally quite well-dressed. Yeah, I mean, even like in North by Northwest, where Jimmy Stewart's character is a working class 
man who's still in this very crisp, very nice suit. So he, I I think, and I wonder if that has to do with Hitchcock and his team, or I mean, his later films, his teams were American, but I think that has something to do with Hitchcock being British because the British culturally, you know, they they have more of this, um, almost like a caste system, the societal system that they still play to. And I I mean, I'm, I'm a little familiar with it. Obviously I'm not English, so I don't really know hundred percent, but I do, you know, you do see that stoic British mentality as, as a character device, as a dressing device, as, as these devices in filmmaking and storytelling. Yeah. That we just don't have in America because we don't have royalty in the way that they do. We don't, we are, we are based in a working class society where, you know, our country is, an immigrant nation where you have to work to get where you need to be. I mean, there is old money, but like Rockefellers mm-hmm. and them, they they were, the Gilded Age is very different from the long history of British wealth and um, higher society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it was like the stories that were being told, as much as you can inject, you know, humanity into it and most yeah. people can find something to relate to in some way, shape or form. Um you know, most people would watch these films as a form of escapism because yeah. they were they weren't having to worry about day to day issues. It was just like something fascinating. It was the drama, right? Um, and that's all that really mattered in their world. It didn't matter if they had, you know, they were they were good on filled food. They were good on shelter. They didn't have to go to work every day. Although, you know, we did we have seen you know films of generally the working man. Right at this time, but it was it was it wasn't just the working man; it was like the career man, and it was right usually quite cushy. Right, um, and he worked so, for the yeah. government. He worked for something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was getting paid well, you know. Even when we did see it, you know that that's why I do like the Thirty Nine Steps particularly because we see a female in a high paying job. You know, she's. Sure, she's getting paid well and it's still upper class, but I'm glad that we're not seeing her just at home. You know, we're seeing her right. um, be an international spy. And that's yeah. really, really cool. And glamorous, too. She doesn't have to, you know, look like... One, she's, she's not wearing a cat suit. She's not... So she's not, you know, hypersexualized, but she's also not... Um, oftentimes with those action especially today, and I could talk about right. this literally forever, um, <laughs> where women in, like action films and roles that are typically considered masculine roles Mm -hmm. are dressed to look super like rugged and masculine and like have this particular like look to them that is like men's idea of what like a badass woman looks like right and that almost never is actually how any woman or non-binary person would want that character to be portrayed yeah. Um, and so what I like about Annab- Annabella Smith is that she's very much just like glam. Yeah. And I feel like that femininity, I mean, yes, I guess she gets killed off. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so maybe it's not, you know, the big triumph that I want it to be. But <laughs> I do like that her femininity is not demonized. And it's also not right. really like objectified either. It's not really it exploited. Exists. It just really exists. Refreshing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of The Hunger from the 80s in a way where Catherine Deneuve's character, um, Miriam is very much, um, and Susan Sarandon's character, are very much like smart feminine women, but that isn't a part of the plot. It just is a fact in the film. Yeah. So it is cool to see that in a film from 1935. 
Um, and same with, you know, like Mrs. DeWinter very much thinks for herself yeah. and isn't always super interested in what she should be interested in. Right. Um, and in many ways, I like that Max is portrayed as like a really crappy person um, in this film. Like we're not meant to like with him or side with him which is a little bit refreshing because usually it's like the woman sucks and she's ruining this guy's life. But in this film, it's at least a little bit different where like he, I mean, to be fair, he's enacted a lot of shitty violence on all these women. Right. But he also isn't portrayed as the hero. Like he just sucks. Yeah. I also love Mrs. DeWinter because I personally love like a feminist anti-hero. Yes. <laughs> I love yeah. anti-hero. Like that to me is the real monstrous femme, you know? And so, uh, yeah, that's why Rebecca is one of my favorites. Of course, it being, I think it, the way it takes a look at female sexuality is something I really appreciate. And it is pretty refreshing along with 39 Steps in the way that it does portray women. Um, yeah. And I feel that, you know, despite the women, of course, being, you know, thin, white, able-bodied usually blonde um <laughs> always, always blonde always blonde um perceived to be straight but not really you know it 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 does amidst those things make it easier for me to enjoy these films because the women do have actual voices within yes. it um yeah. and within that world and they're not one-dimensional because i love old films but i find it really difficult to watch some of them when oh, yeah. there are one either no women in the film like at all or they just don't have any voice at all and they're just sort of there as an accessory yeah for sure i yeah i i really like these two films i love any women characters from this time period that can verbally go toe-to-toe with the men because i am that type of woman that's like sarcastic and and will give it back if the if you know i'm joking mm-hmm. with a guy and like i can i can be quick-witted and sharp too. So I love seeing women like that on film and women that essentially outsmart men as right. well. A lot of yes, these women they do. do outsmart the men in the film, which is, I mean, I think this comes back around to our Hitchcock talk. Like mm-hmm. he, I mean, I, I still don't know where I completely stand on him. I think I'm just going to stop trying to think about it because <laughs> he, he writes with him and his team, these really great women and these characters are very likable and these women have agency of for the time they have agency and they're sharp they're quick-witted they're they're like Alma I'm assuming mm-hmm. you know going toe-to-toe with the men and, and verbally being quick-witted and stuff like that so yeah yeah I think it's going to be just a constant conversation that you and yeah. I have at Hitchcock <laughs> yes yeah I I feel the same way um but I'm glad that we you know had a little bit of an opportunity today to highlight the work of the designers that worked on these films and also the women that were responsible for a lot of his work yes. um, and those female characters that, you know, we love to this day. And while we're undecided on Hitchcock, at the very least, we can say we support them <laughs> and um, a lot of the other people behind the scenes. Um that did work with him. Yeah. Um, and so I at least feel confident in that, that I'm like, love Alma Reville, love Joan Harrison, deeply fascinated with them both. And always happy to spotlight the designers that worked on his film as well. Yeah. I want to learn more about Irene. I want to mm-hmm. learn more about Marianne. Yeah. Where are they? I want to know yeah. more. What do they do? I want to, I think we need to do like some episodes now. I feel like this is, we're getting to the point where we need to start doing episodes specifically on these women who yeah. have been- about i would love to do that we can do some episodes like 
specifically yeah. dedicated to the works of undercredited, underrepresented designers that, yes. you know, where their work was deeply influential, but no one talks about them or credited right. them. Yep. Um, but we're, we're here to do the reparations mm-hmm. um, and give them that credit now. Hell yeah. Even if it's posthumous, you know. They still deserve it for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening to this episode. This has been such a fun chat. I'm so, so happy to be back with Jolene in the yes. virtual <laughs> podcast space. Um, hopefully next year you'll get an in-person to die for. But um, for now, well, we remain coast to coast. <laughs> <laughs> Just stretching um, that big blanket across. Yeah, big blanket of us. across the states and um yeah we we hope you guys enjoyed this chat and yeah yeah i had a i had a great time with this episode um and let us know if you want us to do any more hitchcock talks or hitch talks (laughs) hitch talks that feels like a a talk show from the 80s it does (laughs) (laughs) love it though yeah Um, thank you again we're so happy to be back and we will be back again um, this one will probably come out this coming Saturday and then the next one will probably come out the weekend of Halloween if we're going every other week with how we feel. Yeah. Yes. So. We're back, baby. Woo! Who knows what we're going to do next? Because <laughs> we don't know. I don't know. We do. We don't of. know. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pl- please, please help. No, I promise. We've been thinking. We've been stewing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but hey, if you do have suggestions, let us know. Yeah. Let us know. And maybe that'll uh that'll pique our interest and we can answer some of your questions from our end absolutely and we're hoping to bring on more guests well some spooky guests in the in the pot stew in the pot of guests here at to die for so yeah hopefully uh we'll have some fun interesting wacky crazy topics for you guys (laughs) and thank you guys as always for joining us don't forget to follow us on instagram at to die for podcast that's d-y-e and on Twitter, at Die Podcast. And next time you go into your closet, remember that your pieces could also be to die for.